Welcome to Fireside Chats with Erin, The Reboot. I'm Erin Gowerluck, President of the Canada Grains Council and your host. This podcast serves as a platform for us to highlight grain sector priorities that reflect the Council's work here at home and around the world. Together, we will explore issues and ideas with policymakers and industry influencers. Speaking of which, today I'm pleased to be joined by Nadia Theodore, Ambassador of Canada to the World Trade Organization. Ambassador Theodore began her public service career at the Canada Revenue Agency in 2000. She subsequently worked with the Department of the Solicitor General, and she joined International Trade Canada in 2004. At headquarters, she served as Director of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Negotiations, Director of the Secretariat for the Canada-European Union Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, and the Chief of Staff to the Deputy Minister of International Trade. Abroad, she served at the Permanent Mission in Geneva from 2009 to 2012, and as Council General in Atlanta from 2017 to 2020. More recently, she worked as a Senior Vice President at Maple Leaf Foods, a Canadian consumer packaged goods company, and the world's first major carbon-neutral food company. Ambassador Theodore, thank you for stopping by for a fireside chat. Thank you for having me, Erin. It's a pleasure to be here. One of my first questions, I was going to ask you what it's been like to settle into your new home in Geneva with your family. And in reading your bio, I discovered this is not the first time that Geneva has been home for you. But I wonder if maybe this is the first time that you've had a family in tow. Tell me a bit about what it's been like to settle into your new home over the last couple of years. It is. It is indeed uh, not my first tour in in Geneva. Um, But, you know... I think that when you think about transitions, right, I think, what do they say? You know, there are two most stressful things in life and one of them is is moving. Uh, So, you know, transitions, I think, are always filled with a bit of wonderful and a bit of difficult, a bit of challenging. And I think uh, I'm definitely no no different in in that regard. Um, But it is. It's great to be back in Geneva for the second time around, this time uh, with a family. Um, yeah, and it's, it's great to be, it's great, obviously fantastic, you know, to serve, serve Canada, to represent Canada abroad. Um, but like anything, it's, uh, these jobs are, are tough, right? I mean, you're away from your family quite a bit. And in particular, if you're a caregiver and, 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 you know, in my case, a mom, uh, that, that presents its, its own challenges and, uh. And, you know, yeah, you have to kind of work through that. But I'm at the 18th month, 18th month mark. Uh, so I feel like I've I've gotten the groove now. And so I'm well ensconced. <laughs> You're finding your stride. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. From one mom to another, I appreciate the perspective. <clears throat> it's uh, it is it is challenging, but very rewarding. And we appreciate your work in this role. I had an opportunity, my my chair and I, Pierre Patel, Chair of Canada Grains Council, we had a chance to meet with you in Geneva this fall. Appreciate the conversation there. And we talked a bit about when we saw you, we talked a bit about some of the conversations that we were having with ag sector stakeholders when we were setting up meetings in Brussels and Paris. And I don't think that we had a single conversation where the topic around the European Union and their agri-environmental policies wasn't raised. And I think there was some significant concern from ag sector stakeholders around the impact that these policies are going to have on both productivity and on trade flows. Now, I recognize since we met last, there have been a couple of recent changes. 
We saw, for example, the renewal of glyphosate in the EU for a period of another 10 years. We saw the rejection by the European Parliament of the Sustainable Use Regulation, which was the regulation that included a reduction in the use and risk of pesticides by 50%. But we're still faced with a regulation on deforestation-free products. And for the first time ever, we have the revocation of pesticide maximum residue limits based solely on global environmental concerns. So can you talk a bit about the EU's use of multilateral forums like the WTO and their agri-environmental agenda, and whether or not recent events have influenced their approach in any way, and what impact do you think this could have on trade, and in particular, our ability to move food from areas of abundance to areas of need? Well, first, let me say thank you uh, to you and your colleagues for making Geneva uh, a stop on your uh, European outreach. Um, it really was uh, a pleasure to be able to, to engage with you, and I thank you for taking the time. I know you know we have such a, a breadth of of engagement uh, in Canada across the ecosystem, um, but it's always wonderful when folks stop by to see my team, but me in particular, frankly. <laughs> so 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 thank you for for taking the time. I, I really part of what I love most about my job is is to kind of engage with the outside world and the, the folks that um, that we're doing this for, frankly, and, and the businesses that we're doing this for. So thanks for taking the time. Um, you know, on your question, maybe I'll make, maybe first a general statement. I'll go into a little bit of the specifics that you highlighted, and, and then I'll kind of give maybe a so what at the end. And, and I think that the general statement that I want to make, because I think it's important to keep this in mind, and you rightly um, you know, noted that there have been some, some positive developments um, or some encouraging developments um, with regards to our engagement vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the EU. Um, so the general statement is this, Canada and the EU are nearly completely aligned in terms of our overall objective when it comes to the agri-environmental agenda, right? We, um, you know, we are both, and you know this better than I do, Erin, we are both, and Canada in particular, I would say, is very committed to our climate change objectives. Um, we're committed to being ambitious with those objectives. Uh, we're committed and are investing, we're putting our money where our mouth is with regards to those objectives, um, and we're making it a priority. And I would say that we're, frankly, um, going above and beyond and, and winning very much so um, with regards to those priorities and those objectives. Um, you know, specifically, I would say Canada is deeply committed to uh, pollinator health and to protecting our forests. Uh, and I say those two things because there are two two of the issues that that you that you raised. Um, and so I would say that while the general statement is that Canada and the EU are almost completely aligned, there are specifically uh, issues where we continue to have a difference of opinion and a different view with regards to how we meet those objectives and what are the most appropriate, the least trade res restrictive and the most dependable um, and, and um, uh, sustainable way to meet those overall objectives. Um, 
And, you know, and part of it, frankly, is around making sure that our objectives are broadly in line, both from an environmental perspective, but also from an innovation perspective, and also from a, from, from a business perspective. And, you know, and we spoke about this when you, when, when you, were, when you were in Geneva, but, you know, for the benefit of, of your listeners, um, we continue to engage with the EU um, and, and, and try and drive home to them the fact that part of what we are trying to do at the WTO is to ensure that regulations that are put in place are done in a way that makes sense for the entire membership, uh, are done in a way that are not, that is not trade restrictive, and frankly, is done in a way that meets the WTO rules and obligations that we have all signed up for. Um, you know, and I think, well, I mean, you, you, you mentioned it, right? I think that there, there have been some successes in that regard. I think that the EU, um, and this is part of the beauty of the WTO, uh, the so what piece, they have heard from, you know, over 150 members <laughs> of the issues that are arising with some of the ways that they are looking to achieve their environmental objectives and their environmental goals and their goals around environmental sustainability. None of which anybody across the membership uh, disagree with in terms of overall objectives. We all share the same objectives. We all share grosso modo the same goals. Um, but they have now heard, and that's part of the beauty of a WTO, of a multilateral fora, that they have heard in chorus from developing to developed countries alike, that some of the ways that they are looking to achieve their environmental objectives um, are, in many members' views, uh, not in line with some of the rules and regulations um, based on the information that we have to date, right, are not workable for many of our businesses. Um, and also, frankly, um, again, based on the information that we have, aren't really get, gonna get them any closer to the environmental objectives that they're trying to, 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 to meet, right? And in fact, could do the very opposite because it could stifle innovation and, and stifle good, 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 good business flows and trade flows. Um, and so, you know, listen, we continue to have the conversation, not just in the multilateral setting, although I do very biasly believe that the multilateral setting gives us a unique perspective in that regard, um, because you do have the chorus of members that come from very diverse backgrounds uh, and very diverse trading. Everybody's trading makeup is different, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you, you hear from, from the Cameroons of the world and the Canadas of the world, our, land, our trading landscapes are very different, but all of us are saying the same thing. All of us are for environmental sustainability. Most of us feel that and know, based on the information provided, that some of the ways in which the EU is trying to go about that are, is unworkable. And so, you know, we will continue um, the conversation with them. Uh, in the hopes that we can come to a place um, that that works not just for Canada, um, but for the broader membership. Thank you. Appreciate your perspective on that important topic in an important market. I want to ask you one more question on the topic related to sustainability. It's an important topic. We'll go beyond the EU now. 
late last year, COP28 brought focus to the impact of climate change and the urgency of reducing and reversing global warming. Many global institutions are asking themselves now as a result how they can respond. Does the WTO have a role in your view? How do you see sustainability incorporated into WTO work programs or impacting the operations of the organization? Well, listen, it wasn't too long ago. And in fact, when I was here as a delegate, um, I had trade and environment as one of my, my areas of, of uh, work. And so I remember very uh, acutely <laughs> a time where trade and environment was really struggling to carve out its place um, at the WTO. And where many, frankly, viewed uh, environmental issues as a non-trade concern. Uh, and I think, you know, that is very thankfully changing, uh, specifically as it relates to agriculture. I mean, climate is obviously no doubt of paramount importance. And I think that the effects of climate change really can't uh, can't be, be ignored. Um, you know, we have more extreme weather events. We have less predictable growing seasons. We have changing pests and disease patterns. You know, all of those things, all of these changes and all of these transitions, uh, it all makes it more difficult to reliably produce food. And so we know that the global food system, um, you know, exerts both enormous uh, environmental pressure. Um, and we also know that it is and must continue to be part of the solution. And, you know, the sector really globally has such a tremendous opportunity uh, to reduce its emissions, to capture carbon, to adapt to these growing challenges. And trade and the WTO, in, not in my view, uh, in Canada's view, and now in the larger membership's view, has such an important role to play. Um, and, you know, I like to think about um, that role kind of along three buckets, I would say. Uh, and when I think of the buckets, I think of subsidies as one bucket. I think of innovation as a second bucket, and then I think of you know the broad regulation um, frame as a, as a, as a third bucket. And you know I have to say that on this first bucket of subsidies, we often forget um, that at MC12 uh, we concluded what is really the first environmental sustainability agreement at the WTO in the fishery subsidies uh, agreement. And people tend to forget that, right? But really and truly, it is the first environmental sustainability agreement, uh, multilateral uh, agreement, and it was done at the WTO. And it's all about reducing harmful subsidies um, for in, in, in fisheries, right? And now we're at the second stage of, the, of, of, of a stage two agreement that's going to go even further in, in reducing those subsidies. And so, you know, that's, that's number one. Um, and then of course, when it comes, uh, when it comes to agriculture and subsidies, you know, it's been Canada's long standing view at the WTO, uh, to agree on new disciplines to reduce harmful domestic support, um, across, across the agricultural, uh, field. And, and, you know, that has been, uh, 
a long, arduous slog. And I smile because if I don't smile, I might cry. Um, but I always say that hard things are hard. And, you know, sometimes when things take a long time, it's because they're, they're, they're uh, infinitely meaningful and one does have to have a little bit of patience. So that's, that's the first bucket, right? Where trade and environmental sustainability really kind of intersect in reducing those, those harmful subsidies and harmful is important, right? Because not all subsidies are harmful. Um, but reducing those harmful subsidies that we know really have a negative impact on environmental sustainability and on trade and competitiveness. And then the second bucket is, of course, innovation. I mean, we all know the interplay. I mean, all of all of your listeners uh, who are probably trade and agri, agri and agri-food geeks like us understand the intersection between trade and innovation. Um, you know, you cannot move things um, from, from abundance to non-abundance without a trading framework, uh, and, and innovation is, is no different than stuff. Um, so, so for us, building a framework and continuing that WTO framework where folks can have discussions around what types of innovations are needed in order to combat, um, this climate crisis. Um, and how we can make sure that the WTO rules, that the trade rules are not an impediment to innovation, um, to me is, is of key importance and gaining more traction, frankly, uh, amongst the deliberative discussions in the organization. Um, and then third is, is that whole regulatory space. And, you know, we talked a little bit about it when we were talking about our EU friends, um, but, you know, the WTO, really more now now than ever really has to make sure that countries continue to talk to have conversations to share what they are doing in the regulatory space um in their own domestic regulatory spaces because really and truly if we are not talking to each other and having those conversations to make sure that what we are doing in the regulatory space is a um, getting us to the benefits and the objectives that we say we are trying to achieve. And we talked a little bit about that when we talked about uh, uh, deforestation and, and, and pollinator health with regards to the EU's regulations, um, but also are not, doesn't, are, are not um, um, counter to the trade rules that we have all signed up to and signed up to for good, for good reason. Um, and so those are kind of just three buckets that I like to think about when I think about the intersection between trade, multilateral trade in particular, and environmental sustainability. Um, because, you know, we know that climate and climate change is a global problem. And so it really does require a global solution and a set of global solutions. Um, and, and trade rules are, 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 are part of that. Thank you, Ambassador. Speaking of, of, of global solutions, you referenced the ministerial conference next month. Member states are going to gather in Abu Dhabi for the 13th ministerial conference. And I'd love to know from your perspective what you see as outcomes from the conference. And maybe going into that, what are some of the main challenges that negotiators must overcome in order to deliver a meaningful package? You know, I think, and this might be an unpopular opinion, but I think the main challenge is going to be for us to remember, not that we don't know it, but remember what our overall objective of this organization is. 
because I have to say, um, having come back to uh, the, 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 you know, pure trade policy world and multilateralism after being away from it for so long, I had forgotten, uh, and in particular at the WTO, and I like to think it's because we're overachievers, you know, but I had forgotten how self-deprecating we can be <laughs> and, and how, you know, how we can almost forget lose the forest through the trees when we're talking about these multilateral um, conferences, you know, these, these, these ministerial conferences. So in the lead up to the ministerial conference, it always becomes about, you know, okay, what are the agreements that we're going to conclude? You know, what is the press release going to say? Um, you know, what is our minister going to have to deliver? What is the ambassador going to have to say at the end of it? You know, what's, and, and listen, that is very important. Concrete outcomes um, in the form of concluded agreements are absolutely one pillar of the WTO's work. There's no doubt about it. We are here in part to negotiate rules. Um, and as things evolve, um, you need to create new rules to deal with the changing landscapes of, of, of the global trading system. 100%. All, all about it. We also have to remember that part of what is important at the WTO and part of why we do this work is that we understand that the WTO is the only place where 163 members um, come together to talk about the forward agenda for the global trading system. It's the only place, the only forum where we have the opportunity to take that long-term view of where, not where the puck is, but where the puck is going um, and really start to build the foundations to ensure that we are set up for success for the future global trading system and the global landscape. And that is, in my view, just as important as anything else. And I think that sometimes we lose sight of that. And so, you know, Canada and, 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 and my particular goal going into MC13 is 100% to drive as hard as we can towards the negotiating areas that we have been working hard on throughout the entire, you know, since the last ministerial and, and, and even before that, agriculture, fish, um, you know, absolutely 100%. It is also my very clear goal to remember and to engage with the membership on deliberative discussions around issues of importance in the global trading system so that we ensure that the WTO is set up for success. At MC12, that was called the reform agenda. Um, it was all about how the WTO needs to evolve and change in order to be set up for the future. Um, and this is the first ministerial since we kind of set out on this reform agenda. And so for MC13, I really do hope that we carve out time to really dig into those issues and have those deliberative discussions um, on issues like climate on issues like environmental sustainability, on issues like um, you know the changing geopolitical context and what that means for the trading system, um, and how we ensure that the membership 
and, and our populations within our membership continue to understand the importance of trade, the, to understand the importance of a rules-based trading system. Um, all of those issues to me are equally as important as driving forward on rules-based negotiations. We need to kind of walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, and if we are able to do that, to me, that will be a huge success of the ministerial. All very important topics that benefit from a broader global discussion, but some would suggest that multilateralism is in crisis. How would you respond to that sentiment? Oh boy. Well, listen, I always think it's very unhelpful when people uh, raise legitimate um, good faith concerns and the answer is, oh, you just don't understand. You know, you're you're not in it, so you you know you don't get it. So I will I will not say that, um, because look, there is no doubt about it um, that uh, our landscape um, globally is changing. Um, you know, to 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 ignore that fact is foolish. Um, and so, and, and so, and so we can't, right. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about it already, you know, climate change, um, disruptive technologies, the need for, for different types of innovation, increased innovation, uh, pandemics, supply chain disruptions, uh, wars, <laughs> um, happening, uh, around the world, you know, not just the ones that are gaining, um, attention on our, on our news feeds, which are, you know, um, uh, legitimate and very important, but I'm always reminded in multilateral settings that there are so many conflicts going on around the world, um, that don't gain at least, you know, my, my attention. Um, and so, you know, that is absolutely um, um, part of it. Uh, growing inequalities around the world, right? It used to be that we just talked about growing inequalities in the developing world or the global south or whatever whatever phrase you'd like to call it, but they're really growing inequalities um, in, in all of our countries, frankly. Um, and, you know, dec declining democracies, uh, a rise in protectionism that look very different than the rise in protectionism that we knew 20 years ago, um, that in many cases are much closer to home than we would probably like. Um, you know, polycrisis is, I think, now becoming kind of a buzzword, um, but it's not inaccurate, frankly. It's not an inaccurate descriptor in, 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 in my view. Um, and so those are real. And, you know, does that affect multilateralism? Does that affect the ability to, for countries um, to, 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 to agree in a multilateral setting? Does it affect uh, a multilateral fora where consensus is the way that we come to agreement? Uh, you know, we don't vote at the WTO. I like to remind people of that. <laughs> um, absolutely, it does. Um, you know, and I also think that we can't ignore, um, you know, the shifting global power dynamics and power competitions that are really changing the game when we talk about multilateralism. Um, and in particular, when we talk about global economic governance and, 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 and global trade. Um, 
you know, there's this ongoing debate whether we're moving from a unipolar world to a to a bipolar or two-polar uh, world or a multipolar world. Um, and I think that the debate really is indicative of the fact that it's not really that simple. Um, I think that most countries, you know, in particular, these kind of um, newly emerged middle powers, so to speak, I don't know if that's you know, the right phraseology for it, but, but you know, the, the, the newly emerged um, uh, uh, middle powers, um, you know, I think that it's more of a kind of a multi-alignment situation, a multi-alignment world where these um, uh, emerging markets, newly middled powers are not really, um, you know, they don't wanna align themselves in one camp or another uh, in particular. They want to have the ability, the latitude to pursue their interests as they see fit on any given issue. And they don't want to be wedded to one camp or, or another in perpetuity. Um, you know, and they're also more vocal about wanting a bigger, a greater, a more meaningful role in setting the global agenda. Um, and so that also affects multilateralism. That also affects, um, you know, how we set the rules for trade, uh, the issues that we uh, talk about that we engage on, um, and it absolutely makes consensus harder. Um, to me, where I have trouble is to then leap to the conclusion that therefore we are in a crisis with, with regards to multilateralism, because to me, that is indicative of the need to have more multilateral conversations. Um, and that is indicative of the importance of uh, the multilateral system and multilateral fora. You know, I think it's needed more and not less when you think about all of the challenges, because I think, you know, how does how, how do we deal with uncertainty? How do we deal with instability? Um, it's through relationships, right? It's through those conversations. And I think that, you know, like I said before, global problems need global solutions and multilateral fora is really the only place that you are able to have those conversations and build those relationships if we're doing it properly in a very holistic way, uh, in a way that allows you to see um, um, and engage with countries on a range of issues and understand more holistically their challenges, their opportunities, where we can align, where we're not aligned, um, in order to move forward and solve some of our most wicked problems. So, so that's where I have the challenge. Absolutely, there, there, there are problems. You know, like I said at the top, transitions are always uh, lots of wonderful, but also lots of difficult. Um, so, you know, the global transitions that we're going through, absolutely there are difficulties, but, but I, I, think, um, I think making the leap to say that we're in crisis with regards to multilateralism, I, I, I while, while I am empathetic to those and, and those views, um, I, I take a much different approach. And I really think it just means that we need to kind of dig in deeper um, and, 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 and fight harder, frankly, for the system. Well, I'm grateful that we've had the opportunity to ask you that question in this forum, because I think very often there's this sort of perception of reality. And then there's having an opportunity to talk to someone who's working on from the inside 
to give us a real sense of some of the challenges that you're facing and to suggest that this isn't a crisis, but a time when things are becoming increasingly challenging and a time when multilateral forums are needed now more than ever. And can I can I say here, sorry, not to belabor, but I just thought of something that, that you know, I think is also important. You know, we also we always talk about the kind of big challenges and, you know, concluding big agreements and coming to consensus. But I also have to remind folks that part of the day to day multilateral work and I, you know, kind of talked about it a little bit when we were talking about the ministerial conference coming up at the end of February. But part of the the, the multilateral work is the day to day um, in the WTO committee work that we undertake as a delegation, right? That's not done by me, that's done by my teams across all the issue areas that frankly, no matter what is going on in the world, largely happen and continue uninterrupted and with great success. And you never hear about that because they managed to solve those problems with little fanfare, right? Um, and I think that that's also important to realize as well that, you know, along with the big hairy issues that rise to the top of the pile um, are these kind of everyday, the everyday work that happens at the multilateral level and in, in, in a multilateral setting um, that uh, that is equally, if not more important, frankly, and often continues uh, un, un, uninterrupted regardless of, of, of what's going on in the world. Appreciate that. The steady and consistent work that continues despite exactly. some political challenges that we hear a lot more about. So that's exactly. an important reminder. Thank you for, for adding that to your response. Coming back maybe briefly with respect to the free trade agreements that you referenced, you know, in recent years, Canada has concluded uh, free trade agreements with most of our largest agricultural trading partners. In your view, what are the three most important contributions of the WTO to international trade and to Canada? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, maybe, maybe I would say three things, and we've touched a little bit on them, you know, throughout the conversation, so they probably won't come as a surprise uh, to, to folks listening. Um, but I would say that number one um, is disciplining subsidies. Um, and, you know, that's probably not a surprise because we've talked about it all, already in the context of our, our, our uh, fisheries negotiations and in, and in particular the agriculture um, negotiations as well. Um, you know, disciplining subsidies with regards to harmful subsidies with regards to agriculture and in the context of the WTO agreement on agriculture um, is an issue where, frankly, only the WTO, only a multilateral forum is going to be meaningful. You can't do it bilaterally. Um, you can't even do it regionally, plurilaterally. It really is the single biggest contribution that the WTO has made and can continue to make um, with regards to safeguarding our, 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 our trading system. And so to me, that would be top in terms of contribution. Um, second, again, we talked about it a little bit in, in the previous response, all of the review and committee work, all of the transparency work, 
Um, again, not sexy, <laughs> doesn't get any headlines, you know, nobody talks about it. It's the day-to-day -day work that the teams do in all of the SPS committees, all of the TBT committee work, um, you know, all of the committee work across all of the negotiating areas, which is really about after the rules are agreed on, how do you make sure that people understand the rules, that people are abiding by the rules, that as domestic policies evolve, um, that, that the rules are still fit for purpose. Um, all of that is done in the day-to-day -day committee work. And all of that is done through transparency work. And by transparency, for, for those who might not um, be familiar with the lingo, it's really about countries being open and reporting on new policies, new regulations, new regulatory frameworks, um, new bilateral or plurilateral trade agreements that they've concluded, um, and being transparent and bringing those forward to the membership in those different committees and so those so, so members can have conversations around them and have a chance to unpack them and make sure that they are consistent with the training rules or that they don't bring up new issues that need to be further discussed um and so to me that is the that's the only way that we can actually make sure that the agreements continue to mean something right as if we are steadfast in in that committee work um, and then again, third, um, and we, we talked a little bit about it when we were talking about uh, MC13, it's a, it's a forum for, for discussing new and emerging issues. Um, you know, part of the criticism that the WTO has gotten in more recent years is that it's not, you know, it's not in touch with what matters. It's not in touch with what matters to people. It's not in touch with what matters to business. Uh, it's not in touch with what matters to policymakers. Uh, and I think that part of that um, criticism is because, like I said before, we're very loud and proud um, and, and ambitious with regards to negotiating rules, but we're not very loud about all of the conversations that we have and all of the, what we call in our lingo deliberative work that we do around these new and emerging issues. Um, conversations on trade and environment, like Canada is the co-chair along with Costa Rica on the trade and environmental sustainability structured discussions, what we call the TESD. And that's all about a forum for members to come and share information on best practices, on policies that they are implementing, on challenges that they have around trade and environmental sustainability, and all that that means, um, you know, from um, circularity, uh, to carbon pricing, um, to subsidies, right? To have conversations, not, not, not negotiate rules, um, but to actually have conversations, um, and to really talk about again, where the puck is going. Um, and so I think that that is also really a contribution that the WTO has made, but needs to kind of step our game up a little bit on. Um, because again, if, you know, I always say to folks and, and somebody for sure said it before me, but if the WTO didn't exist, we, we would need to create it. Um, and, and I think that part of why we would need to create it is because there are these wicked issues that, um, that are intersectional, that are cross-cutting and that are global in nature. Um, and we as folks committed to a rules-based order 
to a rules-based trading system need to ensure that we are having those conversations around those issues so we can make sure that we're not part of the problem, but that we also become part of the solution. So that would be the third thing that I would say. Thank you. Maybe before I move on to a couple of closing questions around uh, specifically around your legacy and, and leadership, I want to ask you one more question about the role that Canada can play in all of this. And, and when I say Canada, maybe I'm thinking a bit about the work that you and your team are doing at the WTO. And I'm thinking about the work that industry and associations and the role that they can play. So I would welcome your perspective when, when you've got 164 member states. What does Canada do, in your view, to be the most impactful, to make a difference? You know, I would say that Canada has always been seen as a bridge builder um, at the WTO. Um, and we continue to play that role. Um, you know, we are a member that is ambitious, but also very practical. Uh, and I think that that combination of ambition, of driving people to a high standard, um, no matter what, frankly, uh, but also practical in understanding that sometimes that means that it's a long game, um, is valued because, you know, none too often people get caught up in the immediate. <laughs> Uh, people can easily get caught up in the short-termness of some issues. Uh, and I think that Canada being a voice at the table uh, to say, whoa, 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 like, let's make sure that we're not unraveling rules here as we try and do, you know, something like environmental sustainability, for example. <laughs> let's make sure that we, that in trying to do things that are very laudable and that are important and that we are doing too, that we don't lose sight of the long game, right? That we don't unravel rules, that we don't um, lower our ambition or water down things to a point where it becomes unworkable for uh, for our business or it becomes um, uh, unsaleable at home for our people um, because it doesn't because it doesn't work and it creates more inequities than 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 not. Uh, we have always been that that voice of reason at the table, uh, and we've also always been. Uh, and we again, we talked a little bit about when we were talking about um, our conversations with the EU. We've always been a member that has tried to really understand the diversity of the membership at the WTO and think about ways that we can bridge very different trading landscapes, very different domestic realities, um, and merge those into something that works for everybody and that maintains that high standard that we are looking for. And I think that that has, that is, that has um, gotten us very far. It has, it has made us a trusted partner. Our work through the Ottawa Group um, on reform, uh, in particular, has made us a trusted partner. And, you know, I would also say, and in particular, you know, in the lead up to ministerial conferences, uh, Canada's um, pleasure at doing the roll up your sleeves, head down, pen to paper, uh, technical work 
that is needed to actually move negotiations forward that again doesn't necessarily make headlines uh might not be in a press release anywhere but was fundamental to getting to success um is appreciated and is and is needed and and i think that and i hope actually my hope really is that you know canada never loses that muscle that ability to not necessarily um be um driven by the bright shiny objects um but by the real you know roll up your sleeves work practical work hard work that needs to get done in order to really reach real meaningful um uh, agreements and disciplines that that work for 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 our country and 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 for the broader membership I think what really stood out for me in the conversation that we had when we were with you in Geneva and 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 today's conversation has reinforced is um, your appreciation for an understanding of the issues that are facing Canada's agriculture sector. And for that, we're very grateful to have an ambassador who is there on our behalf and has a true understanding of some of the challenges facing our trade dependent industry. Exactly. So I'm grateful for that. Thank you. I want to close with a couple of questions. You you accepted this position 18 months ago. I'm not sure how much longer do you have in your term? Oh, hopefully a long time. <laughs> there, isn't, there isn't a set limit. There is. It's 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 supposed to be four years. Um, I will make the pitch here that everybody before me has done five years. And so <laughs> To anyone listening, um, it's it's it is four years usually with the with the ability to extend for an extra year um, if if it works out. So yeah, yeah. So when you you have a level of enthusiasm, obviously for this work and, and for this posting in particular, and so when you think about what it meant for you to come into this role, and and you when you move out of this role and you reflect on some of the work that you were doing in this capacity, talk a bit about what you'd hoped your legacy might be through this work. Yeah, you know, the like legacy, that it's such a hard word for me. Um, and in particular, you know, in the multilateral space and in the trade policy space in particular, uh, and coming back to it after kind of being out of it, out of the core of it for, for so long, um, I'm reminded of that because so much of the work is building on what your predecessors did. Right. Again, these are long, long goal, long game conversations. Um, and, you know, I remember folks saying back in the day, you know, if you're lucky, you'll get to be the one that inks something. Right. I mean, and, and it really is luck because it's such a long, a long game um, business uh, trade negotiations and in particular multilateralism. And so I always have to remind myself um, uh to, to not forget that, um, you know, my predecessor, Stephen DeBoer, um, who again was here for five years and, and is now the deputy minister and, and um, the advisor to the prime minister on um, foreign, foreign policy uh, and, and, um, and security issues. Um, you know, he did so much work uh, to move the fish negotiations forward. He did so much work on the trade and environmental sustainability structured discussions. He did so much work uh, to move for move us forward on reform. And so all of kind of the gains that I'm seeing now 
absolutely, you know, part of my legacy and part of the work that myself and my amazing, the, the amazing team is doing, but is also part of Stephen's legacy too, right? I mean, he really has built, built that foundation and he's his predecessor, uh, Jonathan Freed did, did a lot of work to set it up, right? And so, so, so I always think about when I, when I leave, I hope that my successor can at least say that I set things up for her or him um, to, to continue those successes. Um, and you know what, I, and I also hope that the folks that I got the opportunity to work with, um, in particular, you know, my, my immediate team at, 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 the, at the mission, um, kind of will remember an atmosphere of collegiality, uh, an atmosphere of, of Team Canada, um, of really kind of putting a priority on reaching out to stakeholders, a priority of, of reaching out across governments um, at the federal level, at the provincial level. Um, you know, to me, that that'll be my legacy to to make sure that that Canada is is held in 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 the highest regard that it always has been uh, after I leave. I have a personal interest in in leadership having studied the topic as part of my graduate degree. And I think that increasingly these unprecedented challenges that you're talking about require unprecedented leadership. And so I want to close all of my conversations by asking my guests to weigh in on the subject. And so my question to you, Ambassador, is this. After reflecting on your extensive experience, can you tell me a bit about an influential leader uh, whose mentorship has inspired you or informed the way in which you show up as a leader today? I will say, uh, and folks who have heard me on different podcasts uh, won't be surprised about this. There have been, listen, I have to say, there have been many people, many people. Um, and so I choose this one person, not because they are the only people. I have to say it because I, whenever I do these podcasts and somebody asks me this question, I always get messages from many people <laughs> to say, how come you didn't tell, say me? <laughs> Jokingly, obviously, but but um, you know there have there have been there have been many 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 people, um, but I I really have to say um, you know uh, Kirsten Hillman, who is now Ambassador Hillman, um, who is our ambassador to uh, the United States, uh, and I was her two IC uh, on the Trans Pacific Partnership negotiations. Um, and it was a it was a trifecta. It was the first time that we decided to have two deputy chief negotiators. So it was Kirsten as the chief negotiator, Ambassador Hillman as the chief negotiator, and Denis Carrière, who is now since retired, uh, as as one deputy chief negotiator, and then myself as the second uh, deputy chief negotiator. And I have to say um, that Kirsten. Um, really was a leader that not for the first time, again, not for the first time, but one of the first times who really taught me the importance um, and, and what it, what it looked and felt like when somebody was for you, when somebody was committed to you as a leader, when somebody you know, was really committed to making you a better leader. Um, because for whatever reason, you know, uh, she decided that she was going to be that person for me. Um, and 
you know, you can feel the difference, frankly. Uh, and I, and, and I still, and not, you know, that was a long, that was a long time ago. I mean, it's not even TPP anymore, right? Like it's, that was, that was a very, very long time ago. Um, and, and we knew each other from before we were actually posted in Geneva together the first time around. Um, she was the legal counselor when, when I was the, the environment and TBT and, uh, uh, what did I do? TBT environment and something else, government procurement counselor. Um, but, uh, as my boss, really and truly she 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 taught me what it's like when people you know when people give you feedback my mother used to say to me in high school uh be careful who you give your energy to because not everybody wants you to succeed and she used to say that to me when i would like you know complain about little arguments that i had with a friend or like talk about you know something that happened at school or whatever and you know, after having worked with Kirsten, it became quite evident when people give you feedback from a place of wanting you to succeed and giving you feedback because they want you to be better um, versus giving you feedback because, you know, it might be about their ego or it might be about, you know, not really understanding what your particular style is or wanting you to be more like them and not like you or, you know, for different other reasons. Um, and so I would say, uh, you know, Ambassador Hillman is really, was really that, a, the, a, a person that, that to me taught me a lot about, uh, a lot about, a lot about leadership, um, a lot about leadership. And I have to say, so that I don't get an email, that there, there was somebody else that brought me to her, that, that put me forward for that position, mm -hmm. um, because I was on mat leave at the time. Um, and you know, that person as well, again, was somebody who thought, well, you know, so what she's on mat leave, you know, maybe, she, maybe she'll want the job. Ask, ask her, you know, I'm sure people, what I learned later was that people thought, well, she's not going to want this job. It's going to be impossible. It's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of travel. You know, she just had a baby. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And this person who is a man, um, uh, and, you know, an older man, yep, said, well, have you, have you asked her? Because <laughs> she'd be great. Uh, and lo and behold, they asked me and then I interviewed for it. And, you know, and then, and then, and the rest is history, frankly. And so, again, it is a series of people oftentimes. Um, but I always, whenever I get the chance, have to, have to give Kirsten and Ambassador Hillman her flowers because she deserves them. And maybe finally, what are you still working on? I mean, this is a journey. You never attain perfection when you think about the leadership role that you have today and those that you'll have in the future. Where is what is one area where you continue to strive for improvement? There are so many, but I would say my biggest, uh, the biggest area is not caring what people think about you. Folks, especially, well, maybe not especially, I can only talk from, you know, from who I am and my, my identities. Uh, for all the women out there who are in male dominated fields, Erin, you might have views on this too. Um, my, my one piece of advice was, to, is, is to try and try and let go of the uh, innate desire, at least that I uh, have had and sometimes continue to have and struggle with of really you know, caring what other people think, what other people are going to say, what other people might think about how you do things differently, um, how you show up, 
uh, it really, you know, it can get you so far, but then afterwards you really have to let it go to really kind of reach your full potential of leadership and really make kind of the fundamental change in terms of organizational change and organizational leadership that we say that we want. Um, you know, we talk a lot about how the world is changing, the work world is changing, our employees want different things, um, even the leadership teams want different things, but that requires a different type of leadership, which requires letting go of that fear of doing things differently um, and the fear of perhaps uh, not everybody getting it at, at, at the start or maybe not ever, right? Um, and really trying to trying to forge ahead uh, when you know that you're trying to do something different, but something good. So I'm still working on it. <laughs> Man, me too. I'm realizing that one comes with experience and maturity and, and age. Yes. As I get older, yes. I realize I yes. hear increasingly less and less. So yeah. I appreciate that perspective. This has been a tremendous conversation. You've been very generous with your time. And for that, we're very grateful. Thank you, Erin. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. And there you have it, another fascinating and insightful discussion. My thanks to the ambassador for her time and perspective. I hope that you found this episode as thought-provoking and inspiring as I did. Remember, these fireside chats with Erin are monthly, so mark your calendars. We'll be back in February with another great conversation. You can connect with us through X at CDA Grains Council to stay up to date on all of the work that we're doing. And stay connected with us for more engaging conversations that delve into the heart of the grain industry. You can catch us on your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube. Just search for Fireside Chats with Erin and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Until next time.